Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we are speaking with Dr. Chris Papillardo on the life and impact of Leslie Newbegin and Newbegin's approach to cultural apologetics and his relevancy for Christians today. Dr. Papillardo is editor at the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. He is the co-author of One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics, and he's author of a Christian curriculum called Advent Blocks. Dr. Papillardo has the joy of being married to the love of his life, Jen, being the father of two eminently adorable littles, Lottie and Teddy. Uh, we're excited to have you uh, with us today, Dr. Papillardo. Uh, thanks, Dr. Keithley. It's a privilege to be here. And so we're going to talk about Leslie Newbegin. Uh, tell us, what, what kind of research did you do on Newbegin? He is the subject of your dissertation. Tell us, tell us the title and thesis of your dissertation. Sure thing. Um, Leslie Newbegin, I came around to him because another PhD student of mine suggested we read uh, one of his books, The Gospel in a Plural Society, probably his most well-known. And uh, this buddy of mine and I both just fell in love with his thought after we read that uh, while we're getting our, going through our um, PhD seminars. So I decided before I knew what I was going to write on that I was going to write on Leslie Newbegin. I thought this guy was fascinating. So I began just reading everything. In the end, I, wrote every, I read everything that he, he wrote uh, for publication. My dissertation focused on his uh, engagement with theology of religions. Uh, the title was Escaping the Tripolar Typology because a lot of what Newbegin did was try to get out of what I, I borrowed this phrase from another uh, dissertation student, the tripolar typology of exclusivism, inclusivism, and pluralism. Uh, Newbegin was aware of those coming from the thoughts of uh, Crimer, Rahner, and Hick. And he had a lot to say to engage with them critically. And uh, he, he, was, he did a lot to try to avoid those three categories. So that was where I went with the dissertation. And, uh, but there's, there's a ton more about Newbegin that is, that is fruitful, and you could pick a dozen things that would be relevant for contemporary life. That's yeah, just where I went. Yeah, I think, um, I, th I think it might be safe to say that Leslie Newbegin may be one of the most influential theologians that most Christians have never heard of. Would, that be a, would, you, would you say that's an accurate statement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, even for folks who are pretty well read, when I tell them I wrote my dissertation on Leslie Newbegin, most of them, first of all, think that it's a woman. Um, this, they just know that little about him. Um, so, and, and, you know, honestly, I think he would be fine with that. He was, till the very end, when he passed away in the 90s, he was a very humble man. And he was actually kind of amused at all the interest that's, that started to grow up around him. Um, but he's had his his uh, thoughts, his fingerprints on all sorts of contemporary theology, and people just don't know it. Yeah, many of the expressions and terms and concepts that you hear uh, bandied about as as buzzwords and have been developed by other theologians and biblical scholars, uh, they 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 will tell you that it was Leslie Newbegin that got them on the track of thinking that way. In a lot of ways, he was a man of the 20th century. Um, 
born in the first decade, 1909, died in the last decade, 1998. Uh, who was Newbigin? Why does he matter? Tell us a little bit about his life. Newbigin matters because he, he spans uh, two different worlds. He lived most of his life as a missionary to India. He left in the 30s and for almost four decades was a missionary, uh, having been sent by the, the Presbyterian Church there. He retired and had kind of a second career from the 70s until his death in the 90s back in England. And because he inhabited those two worlds, he took that missionary experience from India. And when he came back to England, he kind of looked around and said, guys, things are different now than when I left. We need to start thinking about this place right here the way I was thinking of that last place I was serving. This is a missionary battleground. This, this is not Christendom. We need to think of Western society with a missionary lens. Um, and you might, that has gotten to be almost so common these days that you might not think that that's very significant. But in the 60s and 70s, when he was saying that, no one else was saying that. He was well ahead of his time there. Yeah. So you're talking somebody who, uh, as you said, uh, spent the middle part of the 20th century outside of Western uh, life in India for three or four decades. Um, he was converted while in college, if I understand right, uh, and then right. went to Cambridge, uh, was educated at Cambridge, and then left to be a missionary in the 1930s? Yes. Yeah, his conversion is a, is a fun story because he, um, his father uh, was a believer, uh, but Newbegin seems to have had some of that very common, you know, young desire to get away from the faith of his parents and to really make a difference in the world. And for him, he thought that was going to be political. So he was very engaged in, uh, in politics and wanted to do some social good while he was at Cambridge. Um, but he realized as he was going from one place to another, he had this one key experience as he was ministering to, or he was talking with a, a coal miner who was dying of tuberculosis. And he realized in an instant, all the stuff about a new social order that I've been trying to pursue is meaningless for this man because he's about to die. And so he almost had this bungee cord effect of trying to escape Christianity, but as a young man being pulled right back to it and realizing that is the lens through which I should see everything. Um, and so shortly after that, he followed what seems like kind of a traditional path. He prepared for ministry um, and then left to go uh, be a missionary. So he's a missionary in India, gets there 1936, something like that. That's right. Uh, and he's there until... It, 1960s, 1970s. So we're talking the the period of World War II, uh, post World War II, the 1960s, the 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 cultural revolution that happens in England during this time. Yeah, and he wasn't completely removed from it. You know, in the in the middle part of the 20th century, he had less coming and going for missionaries. You know, furlough wasn't the sort of thing where they could come back every six months. But he and was you aware. couldn't zoom with your family <laughs> right. across the world. Yeah, right. I mean, you're not going to have any kind of, 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 uh, of, like I said, the communications we have today, uh, even telephone conversations yes. were dreadfully expensive. Yes, but he he was more in touch with that than you might imagine, and he was very, uh, very prominent in the World Council of Churches, which was quite a bit of a bigger deal in the middle of the 20th century. So he kept abreast of the developments that were going on in the Western world. But he really, he saw a ton. And um, in his autobiography, Unfinished Agenda, he talks very casually about all these like worlds of thought that he interacted with and how he was drawn to them and how he critically analyzed them. So he, 
um, met some theologians who were uh, from Germany who were really in, enticed by this idea of national socialism, what became the Nazi party. And he said he too was really excited by the prospects of where that was going to go. So Nubigan too was excited about what turned into Nazism and then in retrospect realized this, this is a false thing. But that, that kind of cycle happened often. He saw it with national socialism. He saw it with the rise of communism. He ended up interacting with the church growth movement, which you know rose in the 60s and 70s. Liberation theology was something he had firsthand experience with. And all of this is coming primarily with him as a missionary engaging with people on the ground or later on as he got to be uh, a bishop where he was overseeing various congregations. So he's not trying to figure out what to do about socialism, uh, the Nazi party, liberation theology as a guy in an ivory tower, but as a guy who has a pastorate, a cross-cultural pastorate of a lot of people. Um, and it's just the flexibility to be able to deal with each of these really different streams of thought shows how well-grounded he was in scripture to the point where he he stands apart from the 20th century because he was rooted in the first century. So he uh, has this this engagement from a distance. Uh, Like I said, he is in in, in an Indian context serving there, but still in contact with uh, so many different streams of Western thought. When he left England in the 1930s, or Great Britain in the 1930s, it was still a a nation in which over 50% of the general population attended church every week. He comes back in the 1970s and the bottom has dropped out of Christendom. Uh, something like 5% were mm-hmm. attending. Yep. It was a very different place. And so he has the advantage of being able to see England with a, missionary, uh, with a missionary's eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so he, so he has a new career. Tell us uh, uh, then, what is his career then when he returns? What happens then? Yeah, there's there's two aspects of his career that I find just fascinating. I think uh, are really il- illustrated for us. One is he just he just starts writing. So he, you know, his second career. Most of what we know about Newbegin is this proliferation of books that happened after he officially retired. Things like Foolishness to the Greeks, I already mentioned Gospel in a Pluralist Society, where the, the, the starting point for most of these books is the same, where he says, again, very humbly, hey, I was a missionary for a long time. One of the first experiences we have when we get to a new culture is we look around and we find the believers there and we realize that they have done something to syncretize Christianity or the gospel to their home culture in ways that are contrary to the Bible, but that they don't even see. He says, the second moment of of illumination, and a lot of us don't get there, is in thinking, wait a minute, I may have syncretized, I may have domesticated the gospel in my culture too. And that most of these books have that as their starting point of saying, it's time for us to really take the gospel and apply it to Western society because we haven't. Uh, And we have domesticated the gospel in such a way that it's not a surprise that the bottom has fallen out. And the religion that is left in England, you could apply this to the United States, it has been so domesticated that it needs the gospel to come to it afresh with a new challenge, um, which he called, the phrase he used often and over and over was missionary encounter, that Christians need to have a missionary encounter with their culture. And this is something that's supposed to be universal. He knew it going to a place where most people weren't Christians in India, 
coming back to England, it surprised him a bit, and it was surprising for other folks to hear him say so repeatedly, guys, we've got to think about this as missionaries. This isn't a metaphor. This is literally what's going on in our society. Yeah, the um, there were several theologians in the 20th century who uh, examined culture. I'm thinking now of Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, which happens to be the name of our podcast. Uh, we, we certainly were glad to, to borrow that, that title. Um, so Niebuhr's uh, Five Models of Christ and Culture. Paul Tillich, uh, I mean, his entire uh, theological enterprise was a theology of culture. The thing we have to say about both uh, Niebuhr and Tillich is that they write as men in Western culture. Uh, they, they are not examining culture through the lens or the eyes of a missionary. And, and that is the thing that, uh, that, that Newbigin brings to the table that is fresh and insightful. Uh, so he's, he's the first to really uh, challenge the church to think in terms of, uh, to think about culture missiologically. So he's the one who really brings about uh, the notion of exegeting the culture, mm-hmm. of, yep. of understanding the culture through uh, the, the, the lens of the gospel, through a missionary's eyes. So the mission of God becomes right. uh, a, a very important. Like I said, today, uh, that, that is something that seems to be on the lips of a lot of thinkers. Right. But it was Newbigin that really paved the way. Let's talk about some of his uh, influences. Um, what does he argue for? He doesn't argue for a modernist understanding uh, where we, we are able to arrive at the truth, we're, we're able to have a truly objective way of understanding, but he's not postmodern by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. He seems to argue for something that, does he call it critical realism? What does he call it? What, what, how does he understand the Christian perspective uh, of of knowing the truth within a culture, yeah. How how is he not simply a relativist? Yeah. Um, so I don't, I'm not. He may have used the f- the phrase critical realism. That's a very apt phrase to describe what he was his his approach to uh, epistemology and, and how we understand culture. But it's not it's not a phrase he ran too often. Nubian is really heavily influenced in this by Michael Polanyi. Um, a philosopher who wrote a lot about science, mostly. And Newbigin seemed to read a ton of his stuff. So he borrowed language from Polanyi about um, fideistic rationality. So one of Polanyi's key planks is that he was talking mainly about science. All knowledge begins with some sort of faith leap. He wrote a ton about Einstein. And so Newbigin was saying the same thing, that whenever we understand anything or critique anything, it happens with some sort of presupposition. We can only doubt X over here because we're standing firmly on Y. And that's not unique to the realm of religion. This is true of any knowledge, science most particularly. So he was trying to, to draw, draw that back to, uh, to, to, that was his starting point in saying the way we understand religion, culture, science, it's the first step is going to be some sort of presupposition. As those who are Christ followers, we have that first step taken for us. But because we follow Christ, there is a uh, there's a humility. There's almost even at times a skepticism about our own grasp on how we understand. 
And so it, he would never lead to something as, he didn't like the idea of dogmatism. Newbegin and another uh, missiologist by the name of David Bosch used a phrase called uh, humble boldness to describe their approach to culture. So the humble piece comes in, as Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass dimly. Our grasp on reality is not absolute, and we have to allow that we may be wrong about something. But the boldness comes from the fact that we are not relativists, that something very real has been revealed to us, and we, we speak with absolute authority about that. We could be wrong, we're open to correction, but in, until the Spirit shows us that we are wrong, we forge ahead. Um, it, it's very difficult to untangle this whole bundle of ideas for Newbegin from his cross-cultural experience. That was one of the ways he said, we just, you can't see the ways that your culture is getting it wrong simply by reading the Bible because you bring your culture into the Bible. It's as you cross paths with those of other cultures that they bring things to light in you that you would never have realized. One of the, the biggest examples of this uh, was, um, it was very common and a lot of folks realized that communism was acted as a worldview, almost as a religion. It was all encompassing. But he was overseeing a course in which there was no talk of capitalism and how it might operate as a worldview. When he and a colleague asked about this, uh, the answer he was given was, well, capitalism isn't a worldview. And he just laughed. Because that was it's the sort of thing that you can only say if you're so steeped in your Western view, and you don't have someone from another culture looking in and saying, you know, that whole thing really looks like an all-encompassing worldview. So the, the cross-cultural element is is uh, absolutely essential to all of this. This this almost reminds you know of the usual story about you know if you want to know what water is like, don't ask a fish. Mm -hmm. You know, does does a fish even realize that the water is wet? He's the fish is so surrounded by it, he's he's not aware right. of it. Uh, that's an interesting expression, um, humble boldness. That does sound very close to something like critical realism, right? In that we do believe that we are. Uh, we, we have some kind of contact with reality. So we, but we have to be critical of our assessment of it because we don't have an infallible or, or omniscient. And so there is this constant correction and examination. Uh, and so that hum, the, the, the notion of humble boldness uh, is, is quite interesting. Um, well, let's just talk about some of the major ideas then that he, he then um, Presented the very notion of contextualization. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there's an expression that that we hear a lot about today, but he yeah. argues for it so very well. What, what did he understand contextualization to be? Yeah, contextualization for Newbegin, he had a, a, a handy phrase he came back to often where he would say, contextualization, yes and no. Um, because he sensed that when people talked about contextualization, they were giving a, a false dichotomy that either you uh, bring the gospel, bring Christ to a culture in such a way that it overturns and contradicts the core religion, the core beliefs of a people, or you bring Christ into a culture in such a way that it uh, essentially affirms and ratifies all those things. Or you have some sort of blend or, you know, um, the 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 way that Newbegin understood contextualization was that Christ and the gospel come into a culture and that first step, that first encounter is experienced as opposition. 
but to be experienced as opposition, you have to understand the culture so well that you're actually opposing the right thing. So you meet them where they're at. Yes. You, but, you know how to speak their language. Yeah. But most people, yeah, so that, but in meeting them where they're at, there's often this, this, uh, this false belief that that means, okay, let's, let's dig. Let's find those like touch points, those connection points where there's already some work of God here and we can kind of latch onto that and keep going. And Newbegin saw this again and again with these various movements like Nazism, liberation theology, where he said, the more we do that, the more we tend to create something that looks a lot more like us than the contradicting and beautiful work of the gospel. So in digging to try to find touch points or try to find out what language are these folks speaking, you're really looking for a point of opposition. You're looking for the point where the cross can confront and offend people. And that is, that's the radical opposition of the gospel. But to do that well, you have to understand really what's going on, what the root idols of a people are. Because it's far too easy to, to rush in and to have the offense that occurs be something that is more attached to your own culture. You know, People aren't rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the fact that you came in here as a, a white Westerner and didn't think about their context at all. So you have to truly understand uh, where they're coming from. This means you have to very carefully exegete their culture. You meet them where they're at. You communicate to them in terms, concepts, language, that, the grammar that mm -hmm. they will understand. But if I hear you right, what you're saying is, and if I understood Newbegin right, is the goal is not syncretism. The goal is to subvert their worldview, to, to overthrow them in, in a gospel way. In other words, to, to, confront oh, them with, to confront them with the radical call to repentance and it's not just that they need to repent, all of us. Yeah. You know, in fact, that was Newbigin's point, is that that's not just something that people in India need to right. do. Um, that this is something that now needs to happen in a new and fresh way in the Western culture. Mm -hmm. We need to be confronted with the subversive good news of the gospel. Yeah, and this can happen on a micro scale from one person to another, or it can happen, as you're describing here, in terms of broader cultures. Newbegin went back to the, the encounter between Peter and Cornelius often to describe this kind of dynamic, that Peter is given this revelation, you need to go share this word with Cornelius because he's a God-fearer, but he doesn't know yet the things that you know about Jesus having died and raised from the dead. So Peter does this, he has a little, there's some hiccups along the way, he doesn't want to, you know, I don't eat pork, but God overcomes that and Peter eventually does it. But when Cornelius has his moment, of coming to Christ, Peter also has a really significant turning point. And the things he says afterwards are reminiscent of kind of a second birth. Um, that is the kind of, like you're saying, refreshed awakening that we need as the gospel comes home to us. But again, it's not an accident that that moment happens for Peter as he sees someone from another culture express faith in Christ. Because that, that fresh notion of obedience uh, has a way of speaking to those of us who have tended to domesticate the gospel. It's familiar to us. That calls us us to a new radical obedience to say, wait, he he's saying something that is universally true. I'm not sure that I've let the gospel roots go that deep in the way that I think about sex, money, relationships. You pick it. So there's there's a convicting element 
in that cross-cultural. Uh, yeah. Line. So, so what you're saying is, uh, and what Newbegin was saying, and the Cornelius uh, encounter is such a good example of it. I can see why he used it often. Is that Cornelius, in a very real way, wasn't the only one changed by the encounter. Absolutely. Yeah, he wasn't the only one converted. Uh, Simon Peter came away from that encounter profoundly changed also. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for a great number of Western Christians, and uh, Chris, you and I are in a Southern evangelical environment um, in which, in which um, uh, you know, my Baptist roots, uh, but you know, in a small town in which it wasn't just a Baptist church. I mean, uh, in a little town that I went to, I mean, if you added up how many uh, churches there were, how many people that attended, it was it was a sizable percentage. Mm -hmm. uh, it was that the, the churches had a profound impact. There's a certain insular comfort to yeah. that mm -hmm. that it's very easy to be sentimental about that. Yeah. And then um, I remember then leaving that comfortable evangelical, uh, southern evangelical environment to go to a mission school. Uh, in the college that I attended, you know, it, I, whenever I found out that my roommate is a Japanese person, uh, and, you know, suddenly I was confronted with the fact that, you know, there's more to Christianity than American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. It really forced me to rethink a lot of things in a in a way. wasn't always comfortable. It wasn't always right. easy. It it was threatening. Uh, that seems to be going on today. What would Newbegin have to say to us? Yeah, um, I think he would say that we have a moment of great opportunity. Um, not just there's there's two demographic elements I think you're talking about there, and they're they're both evident now. One is. Um, a greater degree of cross-cultural interaction. The United States is becoming increasingly diverse ethnically, and so the experience that you had is more likely to be one that's normative for folks rather than exceptional. I think a generation or two back that was a little bit more more rare. And so that that is a great time for us as believers to reach a hand out and say, you profess the same Christ I do, but it looks a little different than, than the way I, I do it. I think this could be really enriching for both of us. Um, that's one. The other is, you know, the number of professing believers is going down. There's a lot of factors that go into this. But if Peter was, you know, refreshed in his faith and saw Christ anew in extending the gospel to somebody else, we also have that opportunity. Now, you didn't, you, I think you know this. You never see the uh, the beauties of the gospel or identify the flaws in your own understanding in it as well as when you're trying to tell somebody about it that doesn't know it at all. Yeah. And the more we do that, the more we, we really, that's, that is the training ground to test whether we actually believe the gospel and whether we can actually articulate it. So it's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of folks to have cross-cultural experiences that maybe they haven't chosen and have a lot more interactions with those who don't believe the gospel and increasingly don't even understand the basics of Christianity, not just that they don't believe it, but they just, there's, there's a, a lack of um, cultural awareness. But those are both opportunities for us to step out and to have a missionary encounter in a way that can change others. And that's, that's God's intended design to change us as well. 
Uh, yeah, and how to do it with integrity uh, is 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 the challenge. We, Chris, you are on staff at Summit Church, where J.D. Greer, president president of the Southern Baptist Convention, is pastor. You are active in a church that is um, uh, has has a very dynamic ministry. Uh, a variety of different cultures are uh, are are being engaged with uh, through your church. You're right. My my experience as someone who comes from a rural, mm-hmm. uh, little Southern Baptist church, that was fairly normative back in the 1950s and 60s right. and 70s when I grew up. Um, and uh, when you look at the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, and both of us are, are, are like I said, our churches are involved in the convention. The convention is experiencing those kinds of of, of challenges in that mm-hmm. in the 1950s, whenever the convention was growing by nearly a million members per year, mm-hmm. and, the, and the reason was is that Southern Baptist did an incredibly good job of reaching the working class uh, whites, mm-hmm. um, the the blue collar uh, white population. I don't know of anybody that did a better job of evangelizing them, uh, people who look like us. Sure. Right. And and we did an, also a very good job of of, of evangelizing our own children. Mm-hmm. Something like eighty seven percent of the baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention during those decades were our own our kids. kids. Yeah. And so as long as as that uh, our our families were having five to seven kids, uh, it looked pretty impressive. It looked right? impressive, yeah. and and we were reaching a a segment uh, at that time mm-hmm. the rural South. Were, was going to work in in factories throughout the Midwest in what's today known as the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. and so there were Southern Baptist churches springing up in places like Illinois, right. uh, and California, and places where uh, they you know so, so it was a very dynamic period of time, yep. and we could we could be very excited about that growth, without ever being threatened with the task mm-hmm. of reaching people who don't look like us. Yep. Now in the 21st century, um, we are looking at the challenge of, 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 of the urbanization of American culture, of the diversity of, of the various ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge for us as Southern Baptists is, will we reach people who don't look like us, did not grow up in an environment like us, so they don't understand and we don't understand where sure. they're coming from, so what would Newbegin have to say to us as now we are really called to, to how do we do this? Yeah. What, uh, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I'll tell a short story from New, the end of Newbegin's life, the, the moral of which is it's never too late to figure it out. Um, Newbegin, after he retired, had written all these books. He was on councils for the World Council of Churches. He was the the general secretary. I mean, he was in charge. He, he was a big wig. A lot of folks haven't heard of him, but he was he was large and in charge. And um, the last couple decades of his life, there was a tiny church in a, an area of uh, England called Winston Green. Just a couple dozen folks. It was near a prison, and it the the church was failing. And so the the diocese there wanted to close it, 
and he felt like that would that would be faithless. That these are people here that need care, but they didn't have money to afford to pay for anybody to be the pastor. So he volunteered for the better part of like 15 years to be the pastor for this church of just a couple dozen people in a really poor part of town for nothing because he truly believed these people need a shepherd. Uh, they were not people like him. His experience in India, his experience on these various councils didn't do anything to resonate with them. But he said, when, when there are folks who are lost and scattered like sheep without a shepherd, God calls us to move towards them. So I think there's an, there's an opportunity there for us. Um, I wish that everybody could have 40 years under their belt living in a foreign culture um, with great compassion in their hearts trying to reach people that don't look like them. Uh, and Newbegin is unique in that way. But I don't think we need that to have that spark kind of a light in us. Um, Honestly, a lot of us can think back to where we were and, and how it was that the gospel came to us. It may have been from folks who looked like us, but there's, there's got to be some element of gratitude um, in knowing that what we had, what we received, was, was not something that we earned. And that, that's the seedbed for any sort of missions. And it, uh, it should be the seedbed for cross-cultural missions as well as evangelizing folks who look like us. The main difference is Newbegin elected this. Missionaries choose to have this encounter. A lot of folks in 21st century of the United States, it's kind of happening to them. But if we can, this was a big theme of Newbegin's life, if we can see the dynamics happening around us, stop interpreting them as threats, and start seeing that God is doing something, he requires a faithful response from us, that'll change the way that we interact. Uh, it takes a lot of the fear out of uh, what is otherwise, you know, often very fraught and uh, and uncertain. We have been talking with Chris Papillardo, who is the editor at the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. We have been talking with him about one of his passions, and that is the study of the life of Leslie Newbigin. Uh, my name's Ken Keithley, and this is the Christ and Culture podcast. We're wishing you a good day.